The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information, we encourage you to visit our website, northbryantbaptist.org. When you disobey a command or disregard a rule, what does that say about how you feel about the person who gave the rule? When you disobey a command, you're doing more than simply disregarding that rule. You are, in fact, disregarding the rule giver, whether that be a teacher or a parent or a coach or a boss. There's a biblical example of this found in David's life. So before we look at our text in 1 Thessalonians 4, I want you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12 puts us right in the middle of that very sad season in David's life when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and caused the murder of Uriah, her husband. He has been unrepentant about this sin for about nine months, did everything in his power to conceal this and cover it up. But finally, God sent the prophet Nathan to David who came with some quote-unquote news about something that had happened in David's kingdom. There was a very rich man who stole a beloved sheep from a poor man. And David is angered by this story. How dare someone in his kingdom act like that rich man? How dare that wealthy person be so selfish and greedy as to steal from that poor man? He's in the wrong, and David knew that man needed to pay the price for what he had done. And then Nathan famously told David, you are that man. Now I want you to look at verse 9 of 2 Samuel 12, and notice what God said to David through Nathan the prophet. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. David's sin proved that he despised God's commandment. That's God's own words. Why did you despise the commandment of the Lord? He despised God's word. That's why he sinned. It wasn't that David didn't know that adultery was wrong. It wasn't that he was unaware that murder is wrong. He couldn't claim ignorance. It's that he didn't care. He despised God's commands. But notice in verse 10 that God says something else. Verse 10, God through Nathan said, Now therefore... The sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Did you notice the difference in those two verses? In verse 9, David did despise God's commandments, but that's only a symptom of a greater problem is that David despised God. We do not like to think about that in the life of the great King David, who had the faith to kill the Goli uh, giant Goliath. But at that point in his life, David despised the Lord. When you disobey a command, ultimately 
you are disregarding the one who gave that command. I want you to keep that in mind as we turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 now. Our last sermon in 1 Thessalonians answered that very important, very popular, very pressing question that so many people have. What is God's will for my life? Well, Paul gave us the inspired answer. God's will is your sanctification. And the idea of sanctification is that process of living a holy lifestyle. That's what God desires in your life. For you to be pure, for you to live holy, for you to live separate from the immoral filth of this world. And the first couple of verses of the chapter, we looked at it a couple weeks ago. A major part of holy living is continually keeping our distance from all kinds of sexual immorality. That was true for the ancient Thessalonians, and it is so true still today for us. So this morning, Paul's going to expand on those truths and those thoughts, ultimately reminding us that if we disregard God's desire for our sanctification, it really just means we're disregarding God himself. I want to read the first eight verses. We'll focus on verse four through eight. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. For you know what commandment we gave you by the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despises, despises not man, but God who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. In verse 4 and 5, Paul continued this teaching about our sanctification by reminding us of how different we should look from this world. In verse 4, when he says everyone should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, there's actually two ideas about what Paul meant here. Some believe, and it's probably the, the majority uh, belief, is that Paul taught that believers needed to know how to exercise self-control, how to have that uh, self-control over their lives and over their bodies. Others feel that Paul was talking about how to acquire a wife. Um, that's a little different. Your translation probably doesn't indicate that. I'll explain that a little bit, but I lean towards the first idea of self-control. But they both do have some ideas uh, here that, that are valid. Um, and there's definitely truthful applications to both, and so I do want to bring that out. The difference in, in interpretation swirls around how you interpret two words. And first is that word possess. Your translation may say control, but the word does normally mean possess or acquire or obtain or purchase. And so some argue that you don't acquire your body. You don't purchase it. You don't obtain it. But you do acquire your spouse, so to speak. And so that's an argument in that direction. Uh, and proponents of that view also point out that uh, Peter used the term vessel uh, in his writings when he, when he labeled the, the wife as the weaker vessel. 
Again, I lean towards the self-control interpretation. We'll get there in just a second. But I am going to take this moment to talk to the single people at North Bryant about how to acquire a spouse. You should do that differently than the way this world does that. Even if that's not Paul's main idea here, I'm still going to help you out. I want to remind you of two things. First is you need to consider the type of person God wants you to marry. Looks are not the most important thing to look for in a spouse. And I say that, and I know, and I doubt you're going to marry someone that you think is ugly. But far more important than physical beauty is spiritual character. What do you really see as an attractive quality in someone else? That says a lot about you. The kind of spouse you should be praying for and seeking is another believer who will help your relationship with God. Another believer that you can serve God with. Someone who will help you spiritually. You know, sometimes we use Proverbs 31 to give a biblical description of a godly woman. And that's okay. That's good. But do you know that that was actually a proverb written by a mother to her son? Explain to him, this is the type of woman you need to look for in a spouse. Men, marry a woman who fears the Lord. Women, marry a man who fears the Lord. It's quite different from what this world would tell you to look for in a spouse. And secondly, as you're dating and you're spending time together and you're falling in love and the angels are singing and harps are playing every time you're together, wait until you're married. That's not what this world would tell you. The world would tell you that if you love each other, there's nothing wrong with it. That's not what the Bible says. We talked a couple sermons ago about the repeated warnings of sexual immorality in the Bible. Any activity like that outside of marriage is wrong. Wait and exercise self-control. And that sort of leads us then into this, uh, probably the more prominent idea of what Paul meant in verse 4, that he was teaching that believers need to know how to exercise self-control, how to possess their vessels. Um, many believe that the word possess or vessel Paul was sort of using them idiomatically or euphemistically. He's dealing with a delicate, uncomfortable subject in sort of a, a polite manner, a tactful way. And that makes a lot of sense to us. We still do that today. In fact, the word vessel, it's an interesting word. It literally means a container or just any sort of instrument or tool that is needed for a specific task. Whatever that task may be, depending on the context, it could be totally different things. A baseball player's vessel might be a bat. A musician's vessel might be a trumpet. A surgeon's vessel might be a scalpel. It j it's whatever is needed for that task. But there's a lot of times in Scripture when this word is also just used uh, a little more generically or metaphorically to describe your life or your body. We see it in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul was called in Acts chapter 9 a chosen vessel to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul said, we have this treasure in what? Earthen vessels. 
referring to to our lives, our bodies. And so Paul wants us to know how to possess our physical bodies, our tools that we have, these life containers. And the idea of the word possess here gives a continual idea. And so there's really not the idea of a one-time acquiring of something necessarily, but a constant and continuous thing. We need to know how to be possessing our vessels in a certain way. Say, what way is that? Well, guess what? Here's that word again. Sanctification. We already talked about what sanctification means. It's that process of living holy. But this time he adds the word honor. We all know what honor means. It's that respect and and dignity. It sort of has the idea of what price or what value you would assign to something. So think about it this way. How much are you worth? What value do you place on your vessel? What, What price would you assign to your life, to the body God has given you, the things that you're capable of and what you can use your body for? How much is that worth? I hope that you view that as a priceless treasure that can be used for God's glory. Isn't that what we read earlier in the service from Paul's letter to the Corinthians? We're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in our body and in our spirit. We don't want to fill up our container with sin. When you see someone walking around with a container that's covered with a brown paper bag, what do you think? You probably know what's in that. Rather than viewing our vessels as just everyday containers covered with paper bags to fill up with shameful things, we need to have enough honor and respect for ourselves and for what God has given us and for God himself to realize the priceless value that God has given us and fill our containers up with holiness and honor. That's how believers should live. That's not what unbelievers strive to do if you look at verse 5. Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. People who don't know God as their Savior... They live in the lust of concupiscence. That's just, that just means lustful passions. Lost people typically let their sinful passions control them. Why wouldn't they? But not Christians. Yes, we're still in the flesh. We still have our, our physical mortal bodies. We still have our sinful nature. But it's wrong to let sinful passions control you. You say, well, how do I do that? Since you just said I still struggle with my sinful nature. I I am still in my physical body. We need God's help, don't we? We need God's grace. We need God's word. We need God's spirit. In verse 8, if you look down there, Paul's going to remind us that God gave us his Holy Spirit. And you remember what one of the aspects of the Holy Spirit's fruit is? In Galatians, 
One facet of that fruit is self-control. It's temperance. We need to pray for God's Spirit to produce His fruit in our lives. And if we're following His Spirit, we will always be doing the right thing. There's a verse in Galatians 5. It's before Paul lists uh, the works of the flesh and then gives that fruit of the Spirit. That he says this. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Did you know that it's not possible to sin if you follow God's Spirit? Paul words that verse as, as extreme as he can. It is not possible to sin if you're following God's Spirit. So what does that mean if we sin? It simply means we weren't following God's Spirit at that time. Why did David sin? He wasn't following the leadership of God's Spirit, that's for sure. God's Holy Spirit will lead you to holiness. He will lead you to righteousness. And so we should see this huge contrast between believers and unbelievers here and how different we should be. Believers, through the help of the Holy Spirit, should have self-control over their vessels, unlike unbelievers who let their vessels control them. We should look different from this world. And if we don't exercise self-control... If you look in verse 6, there are social and corporate implications of this type of sin. It will hurt other people. Look at the first part of verse 6. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. Go beyond is a great, it's a great idea here. Uh, some of you have a translation that say transgress, and that's a, that's a fine translation of the word. The, the idea is literally that we do not need to step over the line. We don't need to go too far, go beyond what God has said about this. Anytime we cross a boundary that God has set, we're wrong. Paul says we've defrauded someone else somehow. We think of the word defrauded normally in the business world, right? If you've, if you've defrauded someone or if there's, there's fraud. But the word simply means to take advantage of someone or to, ex to exploit them. Paul's not talking about business dealings here. Some, some commentators think that, but he is still dealing with sexual immorality. He has not introduced a new topic. If you, if you have a King James translation, you notice in verse 6 the word any is in italics. Italics doesn't mean emphasis. Those aren't the times when the preacher is supposed to pound the pulpit, you know, to really pound the point home. Italics in the translation simply means the word is not there in the Greek text, but was added for English clarity. Sometimes we need those words, sometimes we don't. Here, adding that word completely changes the sense of what Paul's saying. Modern translations sort of, sort of catch this, that you, your translation may something like, say something like, in this matter. This same matter I'm talking about, this very specific matter of sexual immorality, he's reminding us of the damaging effects when believers commit immorality with or against one another. Now, it's true anytime that happens, but especially among believers, Paul specifically says his brother. 
sexual immorality among or against fellow Christians, fellow church members, is no different from cheating them in a business deal. It's no different from exploiting them. You're stealing something from somebody. You're going too far. You're crossing that line. And it will hurt that person or someone else. But Paul doesn't even focus or dwell on the, the human-to-human aspect of that type of sin. Notice in the end of verse 6, instead he quickly reminds you of God's involvement in it. The last part of verse 6 says, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such. Immorality is serious because God is the avenger. And I'm not talking about a superhero group. The word avenger means someone who executes justice. God is the one who executes justice. The only other time this specific word avenger is used in the entire New Testament is Romans 13, where Paul teaches us that a human government has the God-given authority to punish evildoers. That a human government has that authority to execute uh, justice on, quote, bad people, on people who commit crimes, who do evil. That's the only other time the word's used. So it's interesting to me that the same word is used here because human governments can only deal with things they know about. That seems pretty obvious. But a government can only execute justice when they know the evil has taken place. But sometimes, not always, but sometimes with sexual immorality, that's an evil that's not public. Sometimes that's an evil that's not even technically illegal based on civic law. Or sometimes it may take a long time for it to be exposed. Listen, just because a government hasn't executed justice doesn't mean God won't. Don't think for one second that God is unaware of secret sinfulness or that he will overlook, quote, legal sinfulness. That's kind of an oxymoron, but y'all know exactly what I'm saying. Even if nobody else in the world knows or cares that you stepped over the line God has set, he's the avenger. He'll execute justice. Think back to David. When David sinned with Bathsheba, he did a lot to keep that secret, to cover that up. But guess what? God executed justice. And as simple as that that warning sounds, we need it. And so did the Thessalonians. I love the end of verse 6. He said, as we also have forewarned you and testified, you've been warned. Make the adjustments, knowing that God is the avenger. How will that change your life? So don't be shocked if there's consequences here and now, but there will absolutely be no escaping standing before the avenger one day. So standing before God and realizing his justice, we might consider a future reason not to be immoral. But in verse 7 and 8, Paul 
Paul gives a, a couple of more reasons to take our sanctification so seriously, and they both have to do with the past, with what God has already done for us. First, God called us, and next, he gave us his spirit. Look at verse 7. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Don't ever forget that God saved you. Don't ever forget your calling. That God saved you from your sin. He saved you from an eternity in hell. And he called you to something. And it's not the filthy, vile, disgusting immorality of uncleanness. He called us to holiness, Paul said. Guess what? That word holiness is the same word that's been translated sanctification. He's called you to that. Now, we don't live holy lives in order to be saved. We live holy lives because we are saved. The holy God who saved us desires us to become more like him. And it's interesting to think about that idea because the thought of a worshiper becoming like the God he or she worships is not just a Christian thing. That has been around for centuries and centuries and centuries. I'm going to give you two examples. One from the Old Testament. The Old Testament describes idol worshipers as becoming just like the idol they worship. When someone makes an idol, what do they do? They, they took a block of wood or some stone or whatever they were crafting, and they... You know, they crafted some eyes on that block of wood, but could those eyes do anything? Did those eyes actually see? No. What about the mouth? Could it talk? No. Could the ears hear? No. They crafted some feet and hands on the side of this block, but could the idol move around and do anything? No. The idol is lifeless and useless and not even fulfilling the very purpose it was made. Why do you put ears on something so it can hear? But an idol can't even hear. The same thing happens to idol worshipers. They are not fulfilling the very reason they were created, which is to worship the true God. They're lifeless. Another example is the ancient Greek society and the ancient gods and goddesses that they worshipped. Their gods and goddesses were this conglomeration of all types of immorality. If you know anything about Greek mythology, if you know any of the stories, their gods were terrible. They committed adultery. They stole. They were greedy. And guess what? So did the Greek people. One ancient author said this about, about the Greeks and their gods. If they who are called their gods practice all such things, how much more should men practice them? Listen to this. By reason of their tales... Much evil has arisen among men who to this day are imitators of their gods. That's why the ancient Greeks were immoral and sinful. They worshiped sinful gods. It shouldn't surprise us. The same should be true of you in a, in a reverse. You should be imitators of your God. And since your God is holy, you should be holy. Since your God is righteous, you should be righteous. God wrote in Leviticus, be ye holy, for I am holy. God called us to holiness, not uncleanness. And so we're remembering that. 
should motivate us to be sanctified. And then finally, in verse 8, another thing that should not only motivate us, but we've already talked about it, should help us, is at the very end of verse 8, God's very presence in our lives. He gave us His Holy Spirit. The end of verse 8 says, God who hath also given unto us His Holy Spirit. When you trust Jesus as your Savior, God's Spirit seals you and indwells you. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul said, When you heard the word, the gospel of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. 2 Corinthians 1.22, Paul said, God has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. 1 John 3, By this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Think back to the idea of a vessel being a container. When you trusted in Jesus Christ, God filled up your vessel with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome? That's how much God values you. He poured His Holy Spirit into you. That's how much you're worth to Him. The God who cannot be contained by the universe gave you His Spirit in your heart. And He is holy. And He is always with you. So why would you live in an unholy way with God's Holy Spirit inside of you? Remember what Paul wrote to the Ephesians? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What do you think the Holy Spirit's thoughts are when you live immorally? Such a sad contradiction for someone indwelt by God's Spirit to be living in an unholy way. Someone might say, Brother Matt, that has nothing to do with God. That has nothing to do with His Holy Spirit. This type of sin is about me. I sort of understand maybe hurting someone else. This is about me, not how I feel about God. Wrong. You could definitely hurt someone else. But notice the first part of verse 8. Ultimately proves you despise God. Verse 8, he therefore that despises, despises not man, but God, who has also given unto us his Holy Spirit. I'll be honest with you, when I first started studying this and looking at this verse, my, my initial thought was that Paul's just simply saying we've rejected God's commands, we've despised God's commands. But that's not what he says. If we reject God's commands, it means we despise God. Paul doesn't, he doesn't play punches here. He's not softening this. If we disobey, if we disregard these commands, if we step over the line, if we don't take our sanctification seriously, it's more than simply disobeying that command. It's despising the commander. Didn't we see that in David's life? 
same thing happened in his life. The word despised here, it means to invalidate something, to nullify it, to set it aside, to act like it's worth nothing. When a believer lives in an unholy way, that's what he or she is saying about God. He's nothing. Set him aside for the time being. He's not worth much. That's what David did. Yes, he despised God's commands, but ultimately he despised God himself. And the same thing is true in our lives. If we do not take our sanctification seriously, and instead we, we choose to live unholy lives, we're despising the very God who saved us and gave us his Holy Spirit. The way you live demonstrates how you feel about God. We don't like to hear that all the time. But do you remember what Jesus said? If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. If you're saved, God's will is for your life to be one of sanctification. A major part of that in the first century and a major part of that in 2022 is to keep your distance from sexual immorality. If we reject those commands, it says a lot about what we think about God. So take your life seriously. Live your life with sanctification and honor, not to be saved, but because you're saved. Be thankful for God's faithfulness when we fail. Be thankful for his mercy when we deserve justice. Be thankful for his grace when we deserve nothing. But take your life seriously. Jesus sure did, didn't he? Jesus took your life so seriously and he valued you so much that he came and died for you on the cross. If that doesn't motivate us to live for him, something's wrong. If you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, I can't possibly urge you enough to repent and trust him. He's ready to save you. He has the power to save you. He's the only one who has ever lived a perfectly sanctified and honorable life that pleased the Father at every turn. He's worthy to be your Savior. Would you trust him today? Let's stand. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful for your word, for your encouragements, for your commands. God, help us to live sanctified lives. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us your spirit. We pray that he will produce his fruit in our lives and that we will not grieve him. Forgive us when we fail you individually. Forgive us when we fail you as a church, Lord. Be with this invitation. If there's someone who's lost, Lord, we pray for their salvation or anyone else who needs to follow you in any matter. Lord, forgive us. Thank you so much for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.